0: What are you thankful for this holiday season? If it's Millionaire Interviews, then would you mind doing us a favor so we can keep this show going? The only way we can keep it going is by increasing our subscriber count. So just take a minute and think about someone who would love to listen to this podcast as well. Now go ahead and send them a text. And before you press send, add this link to your message, millionaire-interviews.com forward slash subscribe. It'll redirect them to the podcast app so they can subscribe within, I don't know, six to nine seconds. We'd really appreciate it again if you share it with somebody because we can't keep it going without you and other listeners.
1: We've made a lot of mistakes, but we feel good about the opportunity that's in front of us. You have to have your heart in the right place. Our goal is to get to, you know, a billion dollars. You know, if we didn't go for it, we'd always regret it. It's kind of the, a statement that we've said multiple times at different chapters of our growth. I'm uh, Kent McKegg, and our company is Order My Gear, and we are a online platform that streamlines the team sporting goods purchasing experience.
0: Or how did you get into that?
1: Uh, My dad actually sold sporting goods uh, while I was growing up. So he called on, he was on the team side. So, you know, he was out calling on coaches, athletic directors, uh, booster clubs, basically selling anything a a school or a team would buy and just kind of watching him do what he did. I noticed that. You know, he he tried to avoid a group order that was paid individually, meaning, you know, if the school wasn't going to buy something, but the, all the players and parents wanted, you know, apparel with their team on it, name on the back, that kind of thing, but they were going to have to buy it themselves. That generally was too much of a hassle for him to mess with because he wanted want to collect, you know, checks and cash and order forms and that kind of thing. So we started by building a, an application that allowed him to put it all online, collect all that order data, collect all the payment, and then print his reports and, you know, go fulfill the product.
0: Was it called Order My Gear at that point in time?
1: So yeah, when we first started that,
0: and when was that? What time period are we talking about?
1: That was 2008. Okay. Yeah, so we originally called—I think our first name was Student Pay uh, Up—but that we never really did any business as that (laughs) with that name. We started towards the middle of 2008, you know, as Order My Gear, and and just trying to help people that sell sporting goods to teams, apparel to teams or groups, try to help them, you know, streamline their business.
0: How about we backtrack, if you don't mind, to when you were graduating college, kind of how you got into this? Did you always want to work with your dad? And could you just kind of tell us before Order My Gear what you were doing?
1: After college, I actually did youth work for about eight years. So worked for a church for a short part of that and then kind of a Young Life type uh, organization, FCA type thing. Uh, in Missouri. I'd always been pretty interested in entrepreneurship and wanted to do something. It didn't really know, didn't really have an idea to run with. And then after that season, worked for a web company here in Dallas and was learning a lot. I read 37 Signals books, Drawing a blank on the name. Ah, I'll think of it here.
0: Was it called Rework?
1: Yeah. Okay. No, it was the one before that.
0: Okay, I read Rework. Uh, getting Real, The Smarter, The Faster. Getting Real,
1: yes. Yeah. Yeah. So after, while I was working for that web company, read Getting Real by 37 Signals and just felt like, you know, I had a lot of big ideas, but, and actually never wanted to get into team sporting goods. But I thought here, I've got a dad who's selling sporting goods, knows a lot of coaches in Oklahoma. He's getting close to retire. You know, maybe I could leverage, you know, the relationships he's built and maybe build something on the side. And so that's kind of how Order My Gear started. It was just kind of a side deal to try and make a little money. And then we got a big break at the end of 2008 and decided we were going to go for it.
0: When you were growing up, I mean, was your dad still in that industry?
1: Yeah, so he he never was part of the company. He was just kind of always our toughest customer. But yeah, he, he sold sporting goods for 36 years, retired three or four years ago. So it was always good to kind of have a little bit of influence from someone that was out selling to schools, having his input as we kind of built the first version.
0: When you were growing up, did you think you'd never get into that business?
1: Yeah, I never really was that interested. I mean, obviously I played sports. I love that. I mean, it was, it's a great job for your dad to have where he's selling basically any ball or equipment that you could sell, but never was really interested in covering Northwest Oklahoma. And he, he worked pretty hard, wasn't interested growing up and then you know, Now, the last eight or nine years, that's that's been kind of my world as the team sporting is world.
0: Could you tell us where you're based out of today? And I guess, could you give us some rough numbers as far as maybe like employee count or, or revenue or something that we can get our heads around?
1: Yeah, so we are in Dallas, Texas. We are downtown, kind of almost to Deep Ellum, if you're familiar with Dallas. We've got about 60 employees right now and we'll do probably 14 or 15 million in revenue this year.
0: Starting back out in 2008, was it just you when you started to order my gear?
1: So I had a developer that was a business partner and he was actually a junior in high school, kid. And it was really, yeah, just him and me. Uh, you know, he wrote the software and I sold and kind of did everything else. Um, and then we hired our first full-time developer probably in 2010. Really up until 2014, there was four or five of us. We raised half a million in 2014. And, you know, have kind of grown since then.
0: So with Patreon, I heard it many times because you have that many episodes of sign up. So that's always in the back of mind. But then I checked it out a few times and I was like, do I really want to do this? So I'll push it off a little bit. And then you posted your goal achievement of 69 Patreon members. And I was like, you know what, what better time than now? Originally, I was going to go for the lower one, the $9 a month. But one, I want to have the conversation with you. But two, I always find that anytime I cheap out, I always find that I want to return it and upgrade to what I really, really wanted. So that's why I'm paying the higher one, if that makes sense. But it was just constantly pushing it off, pushing it off. And then I was just like, fuck
1: it. I already listened to all of them. So why not?
0: Could you tell us about that process? I mean, why you realized you thought you might need to raise money and what that was like?
1: You know, we were actually profitable from 2008 till 2013. We weren't making that much money, but we didn't actually need the cash about 2012. I didn't have the perspective that I do now as far as what the opportunity was as we grew in the number of sporting good distributors that use our system. We started interacting with brands, started interacting with schools and realized that there are a lot more moving parts on both the sell side of the equation and the buy side. It kind of identified a, a much bigger market that we thought was a problem that we had a solution to. As we did that, our day-to-day was was really not consistent with sort of sprinting with that big picture problem and solution. We were growing, but we weren't really zoned in on trying to address the the big idea. I felt like at the time doing an accelerator, we did an incubator type program here in Dallas at the end of 13, we felt like that would sort of force us to focus on the bigger problem, raise a little capital to get some help on the the talent and expertise side. And yes, yeah, so we did the accelerator, raised at the end of 13, at the beginning of 14, raised about half a million. We've kind of been tripping over ourselves ever since.
0: And what do you mean when you're saying before you went to the incubator, you're talking about the market, you saw something. Hey, could you give us an example?
1: Yeah. So the, when you look at decorated apparel, it's a really fragmented market and it's gone through a lot of changes over the last five, 10 years from corporate apparel, polos you see in the airport to five year old T ball team that's got a jersey and a hat, division one athletics, you know, your high school sports to fragmented market. When we started, we worked with your traditional equipment distributors, the guys that are selling shoulder pads and Nike uniforms and they were doing this decorated apparel sort of on the side. That's kind of the only world we knew. Although there's tens of thousands of schools and clubs and leagues out there buying apparel, there wasn't a massive, when you look at the traditional equipment distributors, we didn't think it was that big of an opportunity. Then we started realizing there's you know 50 million kids that are playing uh, sports ages six to 16. They're playing over two sports a kid. So it's 100 million roster spots and you know, they're spending anywhere between 200 and, you know, $1,500 on uniforms and apparel and equipment. And then once you start doing that math, we realize, wow, it's a really broken process to, to get uniforms and decorated apparel. And that's when we kind of started putting the pieces together that there's a really big market out there.
0: I'm just trying to head around the differences between the two. I mean, could you explain that one more time? Cause maybe I'm not seeing the differences in what you meant by the bigger market versus what your customers before versus what you saw as potential.
1: Originally our customer base was literally a local sporting good company that sold equipment and uniforms to schools. Okay. In that market, there was four buying groups. We didn't even realize how many distributors there were out there, but like I said, we weren't, I initially looked at this opportunity as a side business Maybe to make a little money to go do, you know, a big idea. And the further along we got in the business, the bigger we realized the opportunity was both at the distributor level, the brand level or the manufacturer level and then at the school level. As we felt like we were making a difference, as we grew our business, additional opportunities sort of presented themselves. And then that's when we kind of realized, wait, there's 50 million kids out there playing over two sports a kid and they're all wearing uniforms and have backpacks and shoes. And and the way they get it is generally pretty frustrating. That's when we sort of, I mean, it took us a few years, but that's when we started realizing, wait. This idea does have some legs, and sort of a process to figure that out. But getting to know brands and and getting to know schools, we realized there that there could be uh, a company like us that plays a role in facilitating those transactions and helping distributors sell more product. And, And that was also along the about the time that. You know, guys like my dad realized that parents are crazy and they'll buy tons of stuff if you give them the opportunity to. What was kind of a pain point for my dad that he didn't, he he generally didn't want to collect order form. Now with our technology, he was able to kind of scale that part of their business and he saw exponential growth when he offered an online store to every team that he called.
0: If I'm on your website, you're basically saying what my gear replaces traditional paper order forms and let everyone individually order and pay for their online gear versus before that they didn't really have that option. Is that what you're saying?
1: So before it was just a painful option. So if my dad was going to go to Lake Highlands football and go to the booster club and say hey, we're going to offer five products and you can all buy them. It's going to say Lake Highlands football on it. You guys are a Nike school. So it's going to be a Nike hoodie, a Nike polo, a Nike dry fit, long sleeve t-shirt. If he was going to do that, he would pass out a bunch of order forms. They would all fill out what they wanted to buy, staple a check to it. And then my dad would have to tally it all up. He would spend more time on a $4,000 order that the booster club gave him because he had to tally it all up than he would on a $14,000 order where the coach just paid with the school budget. For him, He didn't really want to mess with it. And for thousands of people like him, they didn't want to mess with parents. They wanted to just get a PO straight from the coach. Right. Now, when he would use Order My Gear, that gave him the opportunity to do a custom online store for each team. And now it was... A, less painful for the parent. They didn't have to be in one place to get an order form, write a check, turn it in. It was easier for the parent to just buy online. And it was a lot easier for my dad to let them buy online, close the store, and then go fulfill the product.
0: Can you tell us about you know your growth as a business, how you went from those four to five people? I mean, you talked about your first full-time developer. Can you tell us what it was like then? Were you working from home? Did you have an office? Were those guys coming in? What was the deal?
1: I worked from home up until probably 2010, the end of 2010. And then we had a small little office. Uh, It was 250 bucks a month and it's basically a room with about three people in it. Right. Hiring a developer, that's a big, uh, big decision. Guy moved from Kentucky to here and it was pretty overwhelming. From there, we really added a couple more people. I think when we raised money, we had five, we had one full-time developer and then we had one sales guy, basically one customer support person and one person running Kind of another division. And since then, hiring people has, has been, obviously it's still just as big a deal. Um, when you move somebody across the country or move somebody that's got a family, it's a very daunting task. But that first year that we raised money, we were able to get some, a little more momentum and it, it became a lot easier. We, we were kind of finally in a co- decently cool office. And, and once we kind of got over that hump in 2014, we, we were a more attractive place to work. Most of the people that I hired, in fact, almost all the people that I hired before we raised money are people that I had a previous relationship with and knew me and wanted to give this thing a shot. After 2014, we were able to get a few people. I think we had close to 20 towards the end of that year. Hiring people when you have 20 people is way easier than hiring people when you you know got three or four.
0: Could you tell us why?
1: I think people... You know, we have a a really young workforce, so most of the people are in their mid-20s or early 30s. And just the community that they're in is a big factor as to where they want to work. We've been fortunate to hire some good people that are fun and I think the environment and the culture is something that plays a big role. And I think also, once once you kind of hit that critical mass, at least for us, uh, 15 to 20, people felt like we had momentum, that they were going to be a part of something that was bigger than themselves. Obviously, I think we all, the, the first four or five thought that too but it's just a lot bigger risk to go to work for a company that's got five versus a a company that's growing and you know has got 20 or 30. It's an attractive thing if you've got the right environment.
0: And you talked about your I guess a full-time guy who moved from Kentucky as a developer. Could you tell us how you're able to sell him as far as getting him to join y'all and was it hard to hire a developer if you didn't have like a Tech background. It doesn't sound like you did, but I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, it was hard. Uh, he only actually stayed ten months, so I don't know if, how well a job I did selling him. But okay. but he was a good guy. At least helped us kind of get off the ground. My original business partner, he was a developer. He was able to help a little bit. We actually ended up we hired a, one of the guys that we've been using free, uh, for freelance work, and he's still with us today. So that was probably 2011 that that he moved. You know, relationship and was a big factor in getting the first developer to really stay. It's overwhelming to employ someone that you have no idea outside of using the software, how good his craft is. Now we've got 14 engineers. Obviously they're able to oversee talent and now we're hiring based on function, not just full stack people that can do everything, but but yeah, I mean, that's if there's one question with people that I've talked to who are starting their own web company, it's always when do I hire that first developer? Obviously, it's expensive to work with development shops and freelancers. And, you know, it's, it's a whole different ballgame when you're bringing somebody in-house and they're going to have to live with the code they build years from now.
0: And you were saying it was overwhelming. Can you give us what that felt like when you're there? Because I can't imagine, because I don't have a tech background, if I'm hiring a developer, I guess at least you had a partner that kind of had that. But I mean, were there other parts that were overwhelming before you're able to get into the
1: incubator? it's all overwhelming. You know, early on, we didn't really start off like a true startup. So for us, every dollar we spent was trying to go back into growing the company. And so we didn't start, we bootstrapped for the first five, six years. You're just wanting to make sure that uh, you have enough work, pay someone full time, because whether they're going to get a salary, whether you give them work or not, you're obviously underpaying. My original business partner gave him equity to kind of get it off the ground. You know, just trying to balance all of those, you know, moving parts from how do I motivate this person to how do I build something that's going to make us more money, which will allow us to hire more people. Hires are critical in helping you grow. And and if if you make the wrong hire, it's, it's really expensive. And we've done that plenty of times as well.
0: In your experience, other than hiring, what's been the most difficult or... Helpful thing that you've done through building the company.
1: Most difficult or the most helpful? Oh, both. Either, either or. I think one of the most helpful things I did was form an advisory board. I probably did it too late, but as we look at where we are in the industry, where we hope to go, the advisory board has been helpful on kind of two fronts. One has been just overall company strategy. So I've um, have two CEOs or former CEOs. That have built companies from three employees to 1300, have raised money, have sold their exposure to that world is far greater than mine. They've been very helpful in mapping out a roadmap for four or five years, um, thinking through kind of what are, our, what are our strengths, what are our weaknesses, where, what opportunities should we try and take advantage of. And then the other two are more on the investment side. If we decide to raise money, you know, what should that look like? That's been very helpful. I think the biggest factor there, although they all have expertise I don't have, they all are trusted and are looking out for me. what's good for the company, what's good for me that's been very helpful. I think another thing that was really helpful is we hired a fractional CFO. There was a lot of cleanup that he did when it came to first five or six years of the company but then um, now as we've done that, You know, when we talk to investors or or look at the 2018 budget, it's just it's so much more exhausting than it ever would have been had we not hired him. We couldn't afford a top level CFO to come on full time. We probably, you know, until we get to over 15 million in revenue, probably stay kind of at that fractional level. But with him, we were able to get a lot of talent and it wasn't cheap, but it was, it really helped us as we looked at the future. And every month when we go through our financials, it's just 24 slides and all sorts of interesting data to to look at. So that's been really helpful. I think, I think the challenge is the people side as it grows. I found that leading a company, once we hit that 40 employee mark, 40 to 45, the way that I led five to 45 was kind of the same. And I really had to start adjusting how we communicated as a company, what kind of meetings we had, my involvement in those meetings. It was just an interesting stage of growth to figure out. Um, and we're still figuring it out. But so that's been a challenge. I think on the people side, it's hard to be a growth company and find the right people. You know, we're not a big corporation. We can't overpay everything every month all the money we're making, we're trying to pour back into the company to continue growing it. Finding that balance of being compensating competitively, all the dealing with conflict, make you know putting people in the right roles. And you know every six to nine months, something's changing and we're learning better ways to do our business. And so sometimes people are moving around and overall it's been good, but it, it is a challenge.
0: Well, from looking back at it, it seems like the big change in the company was pre and post incubator. Do you agree? Or is there other points too?
1: Yeah. I mean, that was definitely a big tipping point. The other one interesting fact, when we raised the money at the beginning of 14, I hired one of those investors to be CEO, which last about a year. You know, there's some interest, interesting transitions, A, in that first year, and then B, after he left, he was able to kind of bust through some walls that I wouldn't have done had I not hired him. Uh, so that was good. And then after he left, trying to figure out how we can take, I stepped back into that role. And you know, we've we've been fortunate to continue to grow. But but yeah, I think that incubator, that initial 2000, I kind of jokingly called 2014 our, our puberty year because we were figuring out who we were and it was a little awkward, but we we're able to kind of get through that and uh, continue to grow.
0: Oh, so you're saying that CEO was busting through some walls that maybe you wouldn't have. I mean, can you give us examples of what he did. Is that the first time that you took a step back and maybe you weren't maybe quote unquote the leader that you had somebody else doing it?
1: Yeah, so I was still here every day. I think he had grown a company before. There were risks that he took that I don't think I would have taken had it, had he not been here. So even something like getting us in a, a cool office space, getting a sales team off the ground, those type of things were, were pivotal. Getting us kind of to that next level. He was able to move you know hire quick and so we went from five people to almost 20 in that year. Those are, I wasn't used to, to hiring that quick and spending that much money that quick. Yeah. So, so those are kind of the big factors and just sort of, you know, he knew what it took to, to scale and he made some of those moves. And I think I sort of grew back into that role that year watching him. Uh, obviously I knew the business because I've been doing it for five or six years, but, but yeah, those were things that I felt like he did that I wouldn't have done as quickly and as aggressively.
0: No, I mean, I think that's the most important thing as a leader to realize that, that you saw that and not think of it as like a demotion or anything. If someone else has experience in doing that, I mean, why do you think you were scared? Were y'all making money at that point and you're just don't want to spend too much or can you give us... Any other yeah. examples might have been different?
1: In 2013, we had about 700000 in revenue. With five people, we spent a good amount of that revenue on some software development that we were working with a, a software development shop. With that much revenue, with that little revenue, you just don't have a, a lot of room to make mistakes. And making a big hire, we just didn't have the... The flexibility to do that. And so obviously the capital, I don't know what I would have done had I had, you know, the half a million dollars we had without the guy that I brought in. But I think up to that point, you're just trying to grow wisely and you don't want to get out over your skis, so to speak, to where you're going to be worried about making payroll, you know, every month, you know, we're just kind of in that spot. It was a tough spot as a company because you you feel like you're in front of a big opportunity, but you don't necessarily have the capital to go aggressively attack it. And you're just trying to keep things balanced. Yeah, so I think that's, it's a difficult stage.
0: Can you tell us about what you learned at the incubator uh, and what was the name of the incubator? And then also, I guess the capital that you raised, was that right afterwards? And can you tell us about the journey of doing that?
1: Yeah, so the incubator was called Venture Spur. It's been rebranded here in Dallas. It's called RevTech now. It was interesting. There were seven companies in it. We were the only one that was generating revenue. So a lot of the companies were pre-revenue, had really big ideas and had big opportunities. opportunities. It was difficult for us to keep growing. We actually had, 2013, we had a few opportunities that kind of fell in our lap right as the incubator started. Doing the incubator while you're actually trying to grow a business, it's close to three quarters of a million Uh, is really hard just because it's you're trying to think big picture, but then you're also trying to answer this support ticket that somebody's complaining about or something. But one of the things that was helpful is twice a week, we learned from entrepreneurs that have kind of been there and done that. And they went through specific categories like sales, business development, account management, financial, you know, so they went through this stuff and it's kind of there. You can take as much advantage of it in front of you as you can. And there are a few CEOs that I remember hearing them talk, just sort of raised my perspective as to what was possible. I remember the first week, TJ Person, who's now the CEO of OpenKey. At the time, he was the CEO of Coupon Media, which is still growing. Just hearing his journey really made me realize, wow, we could be a $100 million company, which sounds crazy when you're making, barely making over 500 at the time. You kind of open your eyes to see what's possible. And it's sort of, it was our first effort or first sort of opportunity to to learn a little bit about the Dallas market, the startup scene here, investors here. Once you kind of cross that bridge and get to know, get connected to other companies that are kind of in your same growth stage, it's always really helpful to make those relationships and to learn from them.
0: If you're talking to an entrepreneur today who's not like part of one of those, because before, were you not part of anything like that? And I mean, are you still part of some types of masterminds or talk to like minded entrepreneurs?
1: You know, I try to with just the relationships I've, I've uh, built. We really weren't a part of that. Anything. I mean, I knew a few people in Dallas, but you get so busy trying to, to get your thing, you know, your company off the ground. Sometimes it's hard to network, but there are a few things that I'm looking into now, just other networking organizations. But the Dallas Entrepreneurial Center has been a big help here in Dallas. The Accelerator still has a community. You know, I've stayed involved with them to a certain extent. I think for anybody starting out that doesn't have that, the first thing that was helpful for us was that we had created something that somebody would pay us for. Every problem that we were addressing through that accelerator, through any of the relationships we had were actually real problems that we we had with the customer base we had. And so because we had crossed that half a million dollar in revenue mark, everything that we were learning was way more applicable than if I were going through an accelerator pre-revenue and trying to solve problems that I didn't yet have. And again, this is kind of our story. Obviously, Silicon Valley, Dallas is a different environment than New York or Austin or Silicon Valley. And for us, it was really beneficial that we were making money, that we were profitable, and that we were in front of an opportunity that we felt like was really big. I was really glad we had had those components before we really try to A, raise money or B, really grow. I think Obviously, people have to work with the environments that they're in. But for us, when I talk to people in Dallas that are starting companies, my first bit of advice is make money. Try to get something out the door that somebody will pay you for. And then everybody here starts to get a lot more interested in your idea when you're actually making money.
0: On all through this whole process, what would you say are probably the hardest obstacles that you've had to overcome either like personally in building a business or just in business in general?
1: The hardest thing for me has been kind of seeing what's possible when it comes to the opportunity. And for me, you know, I felt like I saw step 10 and we were at step like 0.5, trying to figure out How you take care of the core customer base, then how you grow, add additional revenue streams, add additional product, work with additional stakeholders. It's always been my biggest challenge is trying to focus on the step two, three, four when you feel like all you're seeing or the burden you're feeling is step nine or 10. That's always been a challenge and getting the right people has been really has been the solution there. It's not been anything I've done. It's just getting the right people that are executing in their particular functions. I think the capital raise component, there's been uh, obviously it's great to raise money, but it also brings a lot of additional effort, I guess. If I were doing it again, let's say we sold order my gear in the next year and if I did it again, I would do it totally different. But I think the reality is you you only know what you know um, at that time and that's all I need. Try to not look back and question. your are Decisions and just realize you've learned from it and move on. That's been another kind of difficult thing. One essay that was really helpful for me during the capital raise time was Paul Graham's essay on how to raise money. I think if you just Google Paul Graham and how to raise money, it'll show up. But that was really helpful in changing kind of how I thought about it. We're still alive and growing. So I can say I would do some things differently, but I don't think looking back, knowing what I knew at the time you know, I don't regret anything.
0: And yeah, I mean, without any regrets or anything, would you say what you do differently is just based on the capital raising? And could you tell us, like you said, if you're doing it today, how would you do it based on what you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I would have more confidence. You know, I'd never started a company before. I'd never raised money before. There's always that temptation to think something is going to be the silver bullet. If you could just get the right developer, if you just get the right fundraising partner, if you just get the right sales guy, or if you just get that one customer, there's always the temptation to think that there's this one thing that if you could just get, it would be the silver bullet. And I I think I've always realized, well, looking back, I've never realized it (laughs) looking forward, but I think I could have done the CEO that we hired. I could have done what he did. I just didn't know that I could have done it. Exposure is very powerful. When you don't have experience raising money and term sheets and uh, equity and all the moving par- lawyers and all that stuff, you're basically relying on somebody that does have that exposure. And I'm fortunate now that I, I now have that exposure because I've done it. But I think if you can find the right partners, find people you trust on the financial side, on the accounting side, on the law side, you're going to pay a premium for that first round. And hopefully you pick the right people and you're able to grow the company. Appreciate
0: you doing the call here. Yeah. Favorite podcast by far. I love it. Oh, yeah? Why that? So I graduated 2017 from Michigan. I heard that shout out the other day. That was pretty cool. Basically, two months after I graduated, I started listening to the podcast. Loved it. I think there were maybe 30 episodes or something out by that point. And I consider myself to be pretty entrepreneurial. Started a business last year. This helped a ton. And it's hard, I think, to find entrepreneurs. I was just looking for entrepreneurial meetups. And I think, wow, this is more of an awesome opportunity to talk with other entrepreneurs. The value is, I mean, it's insane. Like people make these types of entrepreneurial insight things of thousands of dollars. This is 12 per month, but 12 per month is like nothing. It's really insightful. So as soon as you said you were setting up the Patreon, it was just like, yeah, I'll help this guy. You know, I take a lot of value from it. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I really appreciate that, man. Well, I was going to say, have you checked out our newest Patreon episode? Yeah, I was just like, oh, well, I'm in the car. I'll just listen to it, whatever, but I'm not getting anything out of this. And then you're like, wow, I'm not that naive or anything, but it
1: really did open your eyes.
0: Looking forward. I mean, what do you envision for your company and for you personally?
1: We're starting the process of raising a Series A, so we're, we're still profitable. We're making more money each year than we did the year before. But we also feel like we're, from an infrastructure standpoint and from an industry kind of opportunity standpoint, we feel like we're in a spot where now's the time to keep pressing. And we've learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes, but we feel good about the opportunity that's in front of us. And so we want to go kind of to that next level and probably raise some money. I think long-term, our goal is to get to a billion dollars going through the system. So we make a small percentage of that volume Right now, this year, we'll do about 200 million or so, 210 million through the system. So we're kind of looking over the next three or four years how do we grow five times what we're doing today? Obviously, raising some capital, getting some additional talent, building out some teams. Hopefully, those are ways that we can go about doing that.
0: We appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Do you have any last words of wisdom for entrepreneurs who are just starting their own company? And what's the best way for someone to reach you and say thank you for doing the interview?
1: Yeah, you can shoot me an email at just Kent, K-E-N-T, at ordermygear.com. You have to have your heart in the right place. You can't be greedy. You got to be grateful for your customers, your employees, your investors. And there's always things uh, that happen that make you feel entitled or make you feel like they don't deserve X or whatever. And I think that you can be in that spot for a short time, but you got to get back to where you're just grateful and you're enjoying the journey. And I think I've had some good friends around me who have made sure that my identity is not tied up and order my gear. If it fails, I'm still going to be fine. If it blows up, i hopefully stay the same person. But I think those are things that are critical to actually enjoying the ride. You got to keep the main thing, the main thing with your family and uh, spouse and your kids. We've tried to do that and that's been helpful as well. I think the most fun thing about kind of the ride that I'm on is obviously if I make a lot of money someday and sell the company that'd be great. I'm not opposed to to making money. But great the thing that makes it fun is we feel like there's something that we're on to something special and we're trying to kind of change an industry feeling that burden where you feel like gosh if you know if we didn't go for it we'd always regret it and that's kind of the a statement that we've said multiple times at different chapters of our growth hopefully people that are listening can get something off the ground have that mentality of gosh if I don't go for it now I'll always regret it yeah anything i can do to help please please let me know
0: i think that's important we don't only have so much time if you just keep waiting it's not going to eventually happen eventually you got to do something so yeah all right well uh, thank you for joining us today Kim.
1: yeah thank you appreciate it
0: if you think this episode could help inspire a friend or family member then please pass it on flash forward to 2009 and i'm back in the golf business as a club pro And I get a message on my MySpace page from a 14-year-old kid in Mexico claiming that I was his father. You know, he says I impregnated his mom in the champagne room at a club in Cozumel on New Year's Eve in 1998. And I immediately called bullshit because I remember that night vividly. And there were at least five other guys with me uh, that were also prime candidates. So I have to go down
1: there as part of a paternity hearing, and the night before I have to testify.
0: So if you want to hear more interesting stories just like this preview, well, become a Patreon member today. You know you're missing out. Just check the link in your episode description below to join the club, or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you in the membership forum.